1: plushcare.com slash weight loss.
2: Where you start with the character, you figure out what's the experience you kind of want the person watching the the movie or reading the book to have. And you start with a character and then build the world based on what does the character need to experience? Because the audience is going to be invested in the characters the character and characters of the story you want to take them on this journey and you can design everything based on on that and so
0: my name is jeremy gage and welcome to the draw your dice podcast this is an educational show involving all things tabletop role-playing industry Listen alongside me as we hear from creators, entrepreneurs, and supporters about their personal best practices, principles, and philosophies. I encourage anyone from the budding game designer to a seasoned publisher and everyone in between to sit down with us and enjoy today's episode. Hello everyone and welcome to the Draw Your Dice podcast. My name is Jeremy Gage and today's guest that I've brought for you is a long time awaited joiner to the coven that is the DYD alumni. Recommended to me by Randy Lubin. Uh, Randy, if you're out there, this is all really possible because of you, and I love that connection. But today's guest is the creator of The Zone, has been on other podcasts, and is just a big voice in the tabletop space and thinks about a lot of things like accessibility and is a UX designer. I would like to welcome to the show, Raf D'Amico.
2: That's good to be here, Jeremy. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm so glad to be here today
0: course i'm glad to have you here wow. i love i love that for anyone who's at home i always talk with the guests before we start hitting records there's definitely some off mic icebreaker banter but i love that every single <laughs> guest is on the same page about like i'm just walking on stage for the first time <laughs>
2: <laughs> well so i love I, it i think i think we've also got the uh, the signature draw your dice crowd noise
0: yeah it's becoming a signature
2: it's becoming a signature <laughs> it's, it's it's part of the appeal of being on the show
0: you feel so seen you know it should be it should be in the trailer that I'm making currently. Anyways, not about me. Raf, why don't you give a quick introduction, any plugs or anything? Because I want you to make the dollars as well for people who may not know who you are, and as well as pronoun things and everything like that.
2: Oh yeah. So my name is Raph Damico, and my pronouns are he him.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, yeah, I'm a you know UX designer by day and game designer by other times. <laughs> and yeah, I, I love making weird kind of experiential games and also have this huge project we went on for the last three years that came out pretty recently called The Zone, which is a play to lose kind of doomed adventure in the style of Annihilation or Stalker. And it was a game that started in the kind of physical world. Then when the pandemic happened, I spent almost a year rebuilding it as a digital experience. And yeah, you can find it at thezoneRPG.com. You can find me at Raph D'Amico on Twitter.
0: Amazing. Raph, additionally, as an icebreaker for the listeners, what was sort of your uh, first role-playing game that got you into the hobby? Or, LARP, I know that you and Randy also have uh, LARP experience in a big way. And what was the game that got you to say, like, ooh, I could could make something. I want to create something. Walk us through that.
2: Yeah. Uh, It's been a journey. You know, I was making games from a pretty young age, video games, I think like a lot of folks listening. I was modding first person shooters and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I just knew games were awesome and I wanted to participate in them. And D&D was always this thing that was like vaguely on my radar, but really far away. Like I knew it was a thing that people did. Probably the closest thing, the closest I came to it was like painting miniatures in Warhammer 40K. And uh, I'm just gonna say something, if you paint miniatures and you want the paint to dry faster... Don't put them in front of a space heater. (laughs) 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 This is my advice to the people of the Draw Your Dice podcast. And, but I'd say, you know, like for me, probably my first experience, something that's close to RPGs was improv. So when I came to the States as an adult, I went to Chicago first and I did improv at Second City and at IO. And, you know, improv has lots of different levels of structure from like fully played out real kind of theater-feeling things to, you know, whose line is it anyway in games. But within it, there's just all these things that have the same kind of structure as, like, mini-LARPs or, you know, improv itself is kind of like an unstructured kind of mega-LARP. Mm-hmm. And just got completely obsessed with it. I'm completely obsessed with storytelling. And so when I came to San Francisco, Randy was one of my first friends, and we immediately bonded over storytelling and storytelling design and, like, breaking down stories. And we... Started playing games together, and that was kind of my first experience of Microscope and Fiasco, like, really that set of games. Like, actually, I didn't play a proper game of D&D until last year. Mm. Yeah, and so in the middle of that, like, the very first proper RPG I played was actually Exalted, which I really... I can't tell you too much about because we played one session of it completely improperly. And most of the session was us doing a single kick that lasted 45 minutes because Exalted has this stunting mechanic where you get more dice if you describe something more awesome. Mm -hmm. And so (laughs) there was a a single kick that took out a room full of goblins that we described in such (laughs) excruciating detail that it took almost an hour. And then... (laughs) A month later, and I would say like this is probably the kind of the seed of of me deciding that I that I wanted to make these kinds of games was I went to Burning Man only once in my life, 2013. And before I went there, a friend of mine said to me, you know, there's this really cool thing you can do at Burning Man that feels kind of like being in an open world RPG. You go over to the Central Camp and they have a mail service. So people send in mail to Burning Man to... They're friends with some strange hope that it will get there. Bizarre hope. I don't know why you would do this. And there's a kind of center camp where it gets collected, and then people just walk it over, bike it over to different camps. And it's this really cool way of just exploring this giant space, you know? Because it'll mm-hmm. just send you to places you might not otherwise go, to, like, the, the the boonies. Wow. And so I walk up to the counter, and the guy kind of takes one look at me. He's like, ah. I don't want to give this person too much mail. This is clearly not getting where it's needed to go. <laughs> it reluctantly gives me like three small envelopes. And I spent the rest of the day just essentially doing the fetch quest. Like the first mail, to like one side of the camp. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, second piece of mail to this place where people looked at me suspiciously. And then like the third mail, I arrive at this camp that's in the middle of a, a meeting, like a big, like camp meetings, like 50 people. Arrived I've read The Tail End, where this guy gets up to the front. And he's like, hey, you know, by the way, if you'd like to come and play some storytelling games, come to my trailer at noon on Friday. And this is like Tuesday. And if there's one thing I know about Burning Man, and I don't know too much about the culture, it's that time basically has no meaning. Mm-hmm. So I thought, man, the chutzpah of saying come to a specific place at a specific time, Astonishing! I must get in on this. It must be very important. <laughs> and uh, so I showed up three days later, and he pulls out Archipelago, mm-hmm. which I don't think a lot of people know this game because it's almost like this this parallel universe from the universe of D and D. It's like it's it's almost like from a completely it's you know it's by Matisse Halter, and it's more uh, I. I, I I wish I knew more about the history of it. It feels like it comes more from this kind of LARPy kind of freeform world. There's no dice. It's a card-based resolution mechanic. And every player has responsibility for a different part of the world. Each character, you kind of create at the table, it's super, super light, and they have a single kind of faded kind of thing that they're headed towards. And you create a map together at the beginning, going around adding to this land and each become responsible for an aspect. Like I control the oceans. So if there's anything to do with oceans in the plot line, then you're the player who resolves it. There's no mm-hmm. GM. And spent the afternoon in this blissfully air conditioned trailer just playing this game. And it just completely blew me away. I, I I I'd never seen something that had the mechanics of an RPG, but the feeling of improv. Mm-hmm. It, it 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 really kind of stirred something up in me. And then afterwards, by the way, I discovered that the guy whose trailer it was, was Peter Atkinson, one of the founders of Wizards of the Coast, which made it even more surreal. It's just like, (laughs) we're just chatting afterwards. It's like, what? Um, Were were you there with Max Pfeffer? You mean in that session? Yeah. I have no idea. That's the crazy thing. Like, you're there. You don't really know each other's names.
0: That's so crazy
2: because... super bizarre. I might have been.
0: I might, I might, I don't know if I have to, I have to go back and listen to Max's episode if I'm going to include this in this episode, but I have to ask because Max gave a very, what you're describing is a very, very, very similar experience to Max, who's like, yeah, one day I was out uh, like near a Burning Man tent and some guy was like, hey, show up at my trailer later. We're going to play a game called Archipelago. He's like, oh, okay, sure, I'll show up. And then just like went to this random dude's trailer. So, I'm like, were you there at the same time and you just didn't know? Do you know who <laughs> Max Pfeffer is? Because Max knows no, Randy. I don't. I think. Oh, um, my God. I have to find out because he also said he met Peter Atkinson. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> I would love that. That would be so exciting. <laughs> now,
2: I, I've heard since that this is something apparently he's, he's, he's notorious for doing this. You know, I, I met him a, a, a couple of years ago again and told him the story. And it was just, you know, it was really nice to come full circle because to me, it was basically like a fever dream. And mm-hmm. so being able to meet someone who had that experience back out into the real world, mm-hmm. it's like, oh okay, it really happened. This isn't Narnia, you know? <laughs> <laughs> what well, it wasn't this like a real... mirage haze. <laughs> but if you think about it, it's like the perfect way to really, you know, kick off your RPG life, right? Because you know, that's that's the dream of RPGs. You know, that idea of like just you're going about your life and something really weird happens, you're pulled into this strange adventure. And, you know, actually, like, I think that's part of the beauty of this this art form is you can create that feeling for people. Like, yeah, like the whole weird tent and coming into, you know, it's <laughs> a stranger's game that they could hold out for you and takes you to this whole world. That's a pretty extreme environment. But mm-hmm. I feel like every time we pick up an RPG, we're channeling some of that energy. Some of that, like, you know, Ford Prefect from Hitchhiker's Guide to Galaxy saying, like, hey, like... You know put this fish in your ear and get ready to be teleported <laughs> off the planet the,
0: there's a co- yeah there's a lot of beautiful similarities for me with those stories is that one i went to college for theater and dance at one point and i joined the college's improv troupe faces for radio and i still think that's a great name that's a great name it's a good name zach did came already with it. so zach if you're ever listening to the show shout out to you but yeah it I think that's the thing that sort of got... Because I didn't play D&D until, like, nine years later. But there was always this thing that I loved about improv inside of me that was, like, a loose gaming structure. I always like I played... There's also another game at my college called Humans vs. Zombies. I know that some colleges play it in different areas of the states or even around the world, maybe. but For anyone who doesn't know, Humans vs. Zombies is everyone gets Nerf guns, they wear bandanas, they run around campus, some people maybe parkour it. It's basically, like long distance tag, essentially. But yeah, I, I there's, there's something about those moments where everyone sort of gets in the same zone or on the same page in that theater of the mind aspect, like, oh, we both know where this scene is going and we love it. There's nothing, I don't know, there's just nothing more magical for me except for a quiet kitchen. A quiet like line in a restaurant is also a beautiful <laughs> moment for me. But yeah, I think there's something very cool about I don't know, maybe it's the GM in me, but I recently, not recently, but in my real life play group, I added two members on recommendation from my partner. One of the, one of the members was, is an artist. And they met at like a gallery one time and they were just hanging out and chatting and she was like, yeah, I really liked her. And then I saw some comment about like, she likes role playing games. Why don't you see if she wants to play? So I invited her and her, her partner, the artist's partner. I just don't want to say names in case they don't want that on the podcast. That's why I have to like my mind's doing galaxy brain ish today. But it was his like first role playing game thing too, and ever since he's now he's now GMing his games, his own games and like is having a ball and we played lots of different games, so really open to that as well. It's it's really a beautiful experience that I think improv role playing game, just like playing. I think the big key thing is that like you find moments to be, you know, kids again, adult kids but even then like plays for adults as well it's just in different formats and i love that i love i love your lineage of of tabletop touches
2: my uh, my, my, my random walk into this just wonderful world and mm-hmm. like i mean you mentioned the, the kind of the theater thing uh, you know that phrase in improv the idea of like blackout improv mm-hmm. where you come out of the scene you're like what what just happened yeah i, I don't you, you I, it sounds like you've had that experience where yeah You just don't even remember the scene. You're just Mm -hmm. so in it, and the scene ends, and you know, can you hear a pin drop? Because clearly, it was resonating with everyone, and and channeling that. I mean, games are one of the only other places I feel you can channel that, and it's like the immersion in the movie theater. Mm -hmm. It actually, honestly, it connects to something really much bigger for me, which is I remember hearing. I can't remember who said this, but it was someone who was kind of pondering the history of music. And thinking about how weird recorded music is, because for most of human history, if you want to make music, or sorry, if you want to hear music, you had to make music and or just, you know, know the like small number of people who come play chamber music or have it as part of some kind of cultural ritual. So, you know, now it feels The idea, for example, like singing in church or other places where you are singing end up being these kind of side points to spending 50 hours listening to Spotify, (laughs) you know, Uh. and thinking about how like recorded music in like the 50s and like the explosion of people being able to go to these like huge like recorded concerts and also buy just records for the first time, kind of control their music listening experience. Also, I think created the sense of like music is something other people do. Like, oh, I don't do music. Like, someone else makes professional music and I consume it. And I feel like storytelling has had a little bit of that journey to some extent where it always blows me away to think that when you go see a blockbuster movie, there's like literally like 2 to $3 million being burnt in every minute that you're watching. It's just like, Mm. just money to be like set on fire (laughs) for, you know, for your ritual enjoyment. And, and I, I see storytelling games, role-playing games. as kind of a counter to that. they're giving people power back to say, you know what? Like I could watch a movie with my friends. And by the way, I love movies and we should talk about this. I know from, from your last episodes that, you also care a lot about, like, story structure and mm-hmm. movie structure. That was a big entry point for me, too. But there's something kind of subversive and awesome about saying, you know, we're going to turn the TV off. We're, we're not going to go to the movie theater tonight. We're going to create a story of our own.
0: Mm-hmm. It's
2: epic. It's so mm-hmm. cool. I it think gives it's, people...
0: Go ahead. No, you, you. No, no, no.
2: no I, I was done. I was just... I was just...
0: <laughs> I'm here to <laughs> riff. I'm, I'm excited, you know? Yeah, me too. No, I think there's something really beautiful about, like... You know, you mentioned how like someone goes, Oh, I'm I'm not I'm not a musician, I don't make music, I listen to music, right? Like y- you feel like you can add that to ritual before tabletop games. I think there's something about you it gives you the opportunity to be an actor, right? It gives mm-hmm. you the opportunity to uh explore theory of thought. Isn't that ri I don't know. This is me going way into like the, the go ether, there, like you on know, this rocket, what is the, the theory of thought, but to extrapolate like a concept in your mind, right? Like uh, it all the time, you know, some classic things I'm sure a lot of people do is like, you're laying in bed, you're up at like 2 AM. It's dark. You don't have anything on because you're trying to sleep. And then just that thought of like, what if someone like broke into my house right now? What would I do? Right? And you're, like, running that thought experiment over, and I was like, okay, I could grab the lamp, throw it, but what if they, I don't know, what, there are two of them. Then what do I do? Well, I could roll over the bed, high jump, kick the other one, and then, and so... Dude, I'm so happy I'm not the only one who does this. <laughs> I'm I'm almost, there's a good chance that almost every person in the world has this moment in their adult life when they start to live on their own. What happens if I have an intruder? What do I do? But...
2: I'll throw the bed sheets over them and then, you
0: know, like, <laughs> ha, smoke screen. But the reason I bring that up is that what tabletop games improv, I guess, in general, LARP even, allows you to run thought scenarios that aren't just like intruders breaking, but like emotional stuff. Like, how do I explain something to my kid or how do I connect? how do I communicate with someone at work that I'm not finding the ability to communicate with in our day-to-day rituals, right? Like, and maybe you're not thinking about those things on the offset when you're in those moments or even when you're playing, but you're like, huh, in play yesterday when I talked to Gorthak about, you know, he's not swinging his sword right and we trained, maybe maybe there's a softer approach that I can do to David in, uh, accounting about his data analysis. I don't know. There's a lot. There's a lot of emergent role play there for me in my life. <laughs> I love that. That's
2: that's that's so odd. Like I just I got a riff off that because for for me, for for me, what that speaks to is this this honestly like this fundamental aspect of being human, mm-hmm. uh, which is our ability to 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 think ahead to plan. Like I, mm. you know, like the moment where we became human, Homo sapiens. You know, was this moment where you know, climbed down from the trees, and our brains got bigger, and we we lost a lot of our muscle mass and traded it for these like lanky bodies that are flexible and can, you know, make tools. And, and like a lot of that is this ability to strategize and to plan ahead. And I think about you know that that whole story about how orcas in in, in captivity have this particular issue where their their dorsal fins start to collapse because mm. they. They're swimming in the same circle, always. They're not going super far. There's mm-hmm. way less water pressure than they're used to. So mm-hmm. they're they're operating at just like a fraction of their, their capacity, their potential. Mm-hmm. And so their, you know, beautiful dorsal film literally just starts collapsing, and it just becomes, you know, it, it's, it's really sad to look at.
0: Mm-hmm. Look out
2: for it next time you're in an aquarium. There you go. Just turned your aquarium visit into a total bummer.
0: No. No. And now it also makes me question where's the other ninety percent of our brains going? Like So <laughs>
2: <laughs> Limitless. So yeah. the I, I feel like storytelling is a little bit of a similar thing for people where I think our ability to like plan ahead and to to create stories and to think about well when this might happen, this will happen. I, I think when we're disempowered, we become these kind of smaller versions of ourselves, hashtag capitalism and mm-hmm. <laughs> storytelling is this way for us to get power back and to just like expand into like infinite worlds and to honestly like to, to be kind of our best selves. There's many things that make people awesome and stories are are just one of them. So Mm -hmm. I, I always feel like when I see someone light up telling a story, particularly someone who's a first time role player, I'm like, yes, that that's what you got. It's like Superman discovering that he can fly, right? Just being like, Oh yeah, that's what it means to be Kryptonian. I can fly. Same thing with humans and stories.
0: I just have to. I just have to mark this moment. That's all.
2: I, I, I don't know what that means, but I'm honored
0: <laughs>
2: or afraid, terrified.
0: Trying some new transcription stuff so I can get more accessibility to to the channel. But yeah, I think it's. I feel it's all about firing off neurons. You know what I mean? Like if we're not pushing ourselves to connect and adapt, and like when you when you have your own business, right? Like a lot of people go complain about like the day to day and they're going like to work, living paycheck by paycheck and things like that. Are they, and that's by product of our society. I'm speaking to America in general. I don't know how it operates in other countries. If I have any international listeners, but it's like they, they try to put you in corporate buildings and want you to handle menial tasks that are easily repeatable don't require a lot of problem solving and then you get into a space where like i i was working in the restaurant industry for 10 years and i was a prep cook but i would be working like 12 to 16 hour shifts like five to six days out of the week and i had zero time to like think about anything else so any problem solving i did was about like oh, I need to get the most I can out of the salmon or I need to make sure that the sauces are prepped and like those can be repeatable over time. I'm not thinking about now as I start like a podcast business of like, okay, how do I market and what's the best way to make that accessible to people and how do I monetize this? And like I'm solving a lot of different problems and a lot of different ethos and I feel like my brain is growing by the second. (laughs) I want to make a mind so bad, but yeah, I think I definitely think there's something to the thought of putting yourself with storytelling. Speak, you know, putting this back into the podcast of playing games, storytelling, and problem solving, theory crafting mm. that really exercises the mind. Right? I, I think what I'm I, that's what it, I think is all trying to say is that there is an exercise here that is free form. And collaboratives, so you're getting a lot of different perspectives inside of that space as well. So you're being challenged. It's challenging. It's challenging exercise for your brain, and eventually you'll find a, a flow state. So yeah, really good, really good thoughts. And this is just I an icebreaker.
2: That. I love
0: that. Just an icebreaker. Oh my well,
2: God. ice has been broken, shattered, <laughs> shattered, vaporized, dusted, <laughs> best friends, <Thanos>. best friends. <laughs> uh,
0: all right, let's get into the meat of this whole. Kitten Caboodle, let's talk about the zone. So usually my opening question with this Raph, is why why make the zone? You come from you sort of come from like a video game mod background. You have a UX design career. What weren't you seeing that caused you to be like there should be a game like the zone?
2: Yeah, so. It's funny, I, I actually I, I never actually answered your question of what was the the thing that empowered me to, you know, mm. make a game in the first place. And, and that, that's actually like a really good place to start, which is let's say it's like a few things come together. For me, the real core of it was the the moment that the zone was born, I had just gone through a huge breakup and a very, very stressful time in my life. A very stressful time at work. And I was hanging out with Randy and, and some folks. And we ended up playing a game called Love in the Time of Safe. Jason Morningstar game that's a riff off of Archipelago. And I had that Archipelago experience just in the back of my mind, you know, just it's always just sitting there just at all times. And what Love in the Time of Safe adds on to it is it basically says, OK, you've got these like core mechanics of Archipelago. And those mechanics are very, very free form. They don't, impl- they, there's, there's some content, but you can, and there's some implication that you're going to tell some kind of like heroic story. You got this map, you know, like it's, there, there's some implications of it, but you can kind of go in any direction. Love in the Time is Saved is basically a Viking blood opera, which features the, this, this like love quintangle, a quintangle, you know, whatever goes five ways of characters <laughs> who are basically set up to be on a collision course with each other. And they're just like, that the game is really supposed to end in like a field of blood. It's like, everyone is dead, like horribly. And so for example, you got the princess is in love with the, I, I can't remember what the archetype is, but it's called the knight. You know, they love each other. They're having this, Oh wait, no, sorry, sorry. The knight is infatuated with the princess. The princess doesn't know who he is. The knight is a werewolf. The princess is destined to be married to this like, evil vizier from like this other, you know, adjacent kingdom. And her father is the old king who's dying, who has gotten the knight who doesn't who doesn't does know the knight is infatuated with his daughter, but who's assigned the knight to protect him. The knight wants to protect her, obviously, from the Grand Vizier. The Grand Vizier wants to take over the king's kingdom and using subterfuge. And the Safe is the witch, you know, who gives the The princess kind of secret lessons and I think maybe possibly also the king maybe has cursed the knight. I can't really remember. But either way, at the beginning of the game, you've got all these dynamics that are set up that just make it inevitable that, you know, the knight's going to turn into a werewolf and murder everyone. And the princess is going to try and run away, but it'll go horribly wrong. And like, it's just, it's beautiful. And he uses the same archipelago mechanics and playing it, the thing that got me about it, I've been playing a bunch of these Jason Morningstar LARPs and kind of smaller games. And the, the thing that his work just absolutely just, just blows me away with is that he puts just enough and no more. It's like a, the perfect amount of content that you can just kind of pick it up. And LARP is really good at this. You could just kind of start playing. And there's so much thought process about how getting into the game isn't this thing you do before playing, but it's part of the experience of, of the game itself. And the other thing that it got me about it was just seeing how minimal you could make the rule set and the experience and still create this incredibly guided experience and i'll just connect this to something which is like the first like proper you know rpg that i made was actually with randy we used to meet up every few months to to, on on weekends and just say like let's just make some stuff this weekend and one time we were just riffing on this and you know i know it is so flawed in so many ways we were riffing off the hero's journey and we're like what if you just made a game that was just like the hero's the hero's journey as the structure and you have like some 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 structured prompts that just walk you through that process save the cat style again such a reductionist storytelling style but also you know if the goal is to get total beginners to tell a cool story in half an hour some of that reduction can be useful with like nice little prompts and some kind of pre-made characters and the character is just like a card with a drawing that i made and three aspects and we started playtesting it with folks who just weren't role-playing game people at all and you just give them this structure they see this board of cards they know exactly what they got to do 30 minutes later they've told like like a really quick like essentially kind of like a movie outline so i was thinking back to that and and it just all came together for me and i would say like that was kind of like the the the, the tinder But the spark was I had just seen Annihilation three times. And (laughs) I think it's a good movie. I like it. You know, (laughs) I think the world's the majority opinion of that movie is like kinda cool, kinda weird. And Um, then there's like a small number of people who are just like, this movie plugged itself into my brainstem and has just like (laughs) taken up residence there. (laughs) Uh, and I'm one of those people. Like, you know, I, I can stop looking at it. There's some. There's just some such deep themes. So I was like, okay, like Viking blood opera. Everyone starting in a certain place, having their fates essentially predetermined with this like lightweight system around it.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And then annihilation. You got that topology. I think a lot about storytelling topology. Like, what's the shape of a story
0: when you mm-hmm. separate
2: it out from the the content? That topology of a bunch of people go into a place. They each get picked off one by one. Someone makes it to the center. That's an interesting shape.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Interesting thing about that, that shape also exists for, for example, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. But asking yourself, like, what's the shape of a story that you want to create? For me, like, Annihilation, just that shape just, like, seared itself into my brain. And I think it was, like, a week or two later, I kind of gathered gathered some friends, and we played the first playtest, and... I really kind of used Love in the Time of Safe as his initial model, where, mm-hmm. again, I had, like, all the same characters as Annihilation. Really, it was, like, very much like Annihilation the game in the very first version. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. like, the scientist was kind of resentful of the, you know, the chaplain because, you know, the, you know, it's science. No, it's God. You know, was, like, really trying to set up those tensions at the beginning. And, and I realized immediately kind of in the first playtest that it really wasn't about the characters, there was, like a solo journey you would go on as your you know as your character you go on this this well self annihilation this self destruction mm-hmm. there's this really incredibly fun thing that happens in play to lose games where you get the the ability to like totally self destroy your character because you know that they have to be destroyed anyway mm-hmm. you don't have the same attachment as like well i have to like level up to level 50 in 7 years yeah um <laughs> which is cool too, by the way, but that really kind of came out. And then the other thing that came out was just, and I think this comes back really to the beginning of your question. Like the thing that I, I felt like really needed to exist in the world was really two things, like games that played with this less literal and more magical realist narrative, because there's one thing I learned from improv is that really like two disparate things can always be put next to each other and a story can like emerge between them. Like, it doesn't all have to make sense Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, and you
2: can create these very powerful emotional experiences when you uh, put like basically like weird things next to each other and ask players to find the connection the weirder the two things the weirder the connection will be but also the more potential kind of for storytelling and then the other thing was just this idea of accessibility like I really really wanted to have a game and partly this is a very personal thing for me which is I've wanted to run things like D&D in the past or big games. And I personally am really intimidated by having to study three or 400 pages and internalize it. And I I feel like it's like you're giving me the raw material, not the game. Like me as a GM, I have to turn it into a game, which Mm -hmm. feels really overwhelming. And so, I really wanted to create an experience that would parcel out all of the parts of the game in, in in the right way to different players and at different times. I think this is actually one of the most powerful thing about card game, card based RPGs. Some of the trend that we're seeing there is that literally putting things on separate cards is also a way of of parceling out different parts of the mm-hmm. game in time and to different people. And I really wanted to explore that because I wanted to make a game that people could just, you know, take out of the box pick up and just three hours later they've totally creeped each other out with their weird campfire story you know zone that they mm-hmm. made themselves and that 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 was the impetus that's what i felt really needed to happen and also and i think this is this is the thing i love about art right part of it too was i just needed it to exist there's something about the themes of self-destruction and mutation, identity that, for me, particularly at the time of my life, and actually like even more so in the last three years, that I, I, I found that I was able to explore through that in a pretty powerful way. Um, there's just so much there, man. There's so much. There's so many directions. <laughs>
0: there's so.
2: <laughs> I'll boil it down to horror, accessibility, and
0: identity are probably like the three things. I mean, what is, you know, what is a, what is character development, right? If not self-destruction of your old self into the creation of a new self, right? And I, you know, mm-hmm. if someone might be less like, whoa, so deep. But but for real, it's like when you think about who you are today you created that person by destroying the bits of your past self that you didn't like or that didn't function for in society for you or that were getting it that was getting in the way so like now this is also potentially an interesting like conversation about character because i know that a while back Viditya Valetti asked something about like progression systems and how they don't feel like super great to him and now with this conversation i'm like well what if there was a progression system that you had to remove something from yourself to gain something else right and it's almost like deck building in a way right you only get 60 cards in a deck you know i think you know magic the gathering can have more than 60 but really an optimal standard deck is 60 cards you don't you want to maximize that's what i have in my spreadsheet obviously yeah (laughs) (laughs) Have you referenced the Excel sheet I made? (laughs) Jesus Christ. On my wall. Anyway, you only have, you only have so much room as a person mentally, spiritually, physically. Yeah. And that changes based on the things you let go of. And it's so fascinating to think about that as self-destruction in a positive way of like almost self pruning kind of is another maybe way to put it. But it makes me now think about character development in a, in a pretty different way now. And now I want to make a game where you have to get. I, I like deck builders. Like Slay the Spire is a good example oh my of God. something that might be like this.
2: Oh my God. Say, whenever I look at my Steam library and I, I notice my hours played of Slay the Spire, <laughs> I feel this sinking feeling.
0: <laughs> and then you play again. <laughs> and then you play some more. Slay the Spire Correct. is good. It's a, It's a good example of character progression through destruction because if your deck is too big then you can't maximize your strategies and then that hurts your you know when you get to the final boss for i don't want to ruin it for people who haven't played Slate the spire but like yeah really really interesting concept about the story of self-destruction not even in a game sense but even in a story sense too of yeah. like a character only changes when when i was so real quick before i get into some other stuff would you just Tell people what The Zone is, because we haven't exactly said that yet.
2: (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. So The Zone is, it's a card-based tabletop RPG where you tell the story of a doomed expedition into this weird, mysterious zone. If you've seen Annihilation or, you know, played the Stalker series of games or read Roadside Picnic, it's really that kind of thing. And the way that it plays is that you've got two to five characters, sorry, two to five players and you create these doomed characters with the, each one has an obsession and a phobia and a reason that they just cannot go back out into the world. Because every previous expedition to the zone has not come back. So they know it's probably a suicide mission. Why are they doing this? Because it is rumored that there's something at the center of the zone that will grant your deepest wish. And these desperate characters, that is the, the, the basically like the last thing that they got. They got going for them. But at the beginning of the game, you pull from a deck of fate cards, lay them over the spiral of locations that make up the zone, and predetermine when each of you is going to become one with the zone. I I don't say die because, I mean, basically you die, but essentially that can mean walking off into the forest and becoming one with the trees. Or it Mm could mean being, like, horrifyingly torn apart by a radioactive mutant bear, you know? Great scene. And the final player makes it to the center, and they can ask for their wish, but it's not so easy because all the other players who are now one with the zone will get to come up with a monkey's paw kind of weird ending where the thing you wanted is not necessarily what you think you're going to get. And so that's the experience it's trying to create, this experience of just empowering the players to create their own horrible horrible fates for their characters mm. and trying to blend that 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 thing i love from horror which is when you have really horrible gruesome things that are right next to like beautiful magical things and sometimes you don't know which one is which and i say cards you know the the the, the, the physical version it's entirely card based the book is just like lightweight onboarding and i've tried to carry that over into the the, the, the the digital version. So if you play a digital version, then you, you know, buy the physical version when I eventually, you know, get it out there. You should already know how to play.
0: Yeah, so for the game, one, beautiful guided experience for sure. We had the designers behind gem room games on who where we talked about a little bit about onboarding and accessibility and i don't know in reference when this episode will come out in reference to all other episodes no but i've it's since i've watched
2: it's like the last second to last one in the list i was just listening to it yesterday mm -hmm. loved
0: it dan collie thanks for being on the show and violet as well uh little violet but i think about like what was nice about the guide experiences. One, you explain the game in sort of like an in narrative way, which is also something I'm thinking about as I write games. There's a game I'm uh, writing called heed the call, which is my attempt to take on fighting game mechanics and tabletop them in a non like card game competitive fashion, but it is using cards. But I also combine it with the storytelling of like a Metroidvania and Mm -hmm. What's interesting about like Metroidvanias for me is that you don't learn about like the backstory of this Herald character. Right. And that's what I call the players is like they're called the Heralds because they're here to fuck this whole thing up. That's why they're here. They're the change that this area needed. But you don't know about their backstory. So heed the call sort of starts with an onboarding process of like character creation as a session. So it's like, if you ever played kingdom hearts or if you've ever played, if any, basically kingdom hearts is the big one where, especially like the first two where you open up into, uh, almost like a tutorial level of like hero, far traveler. How do you protect your friends? And you pick like one of three starting stats and then the, and that's the sort of experience that you go through. And I thought that, was a cool way to get a person into the role-playing aspect because you tell them, like, hey, you enter on scene right now. How do you fight? What special trinkets did you bring with you? Where do you come from that you'll think about while you're out here? You'll never go back there during this game, but it's important that, that defines who you are. So what I like about your onboarding process is you really walk people through and like in a narrative way of like, Hey, you're getting a debrief from the general or something like that. And these are also the instructions of the game at the same time. And then even the onboarding process of character creation, as you sort of pick from different prompts, the additional thing that I thought about, there's a book I'm reading called character creating character arcs by KM Wayland. And in the book, it talks about that a character is four things. It says, the character has a lie about the world. So in Thor, Thor's lie is that might is right sort of thing. And as a part of that lie, there's a ghost that created that lie. Something that the character has lost or has been told that is, has that is fashioned that lie. So there is, for Thor, it's that his father has always ruled with sort of like an iron fist sort of thing. He's like, oh, my father sort of did it this way too, so that must be the way you become a king, uh, a good king. And, you know, we find out that his father likes to people, and, like, that's just how Thor has internalized it. And then the character wants something. Thor wants to be king. and then But the character also needs something. He needs to learn how to be humble to be a good king in terms of the story that's being told there. So the reason I bring that up is that your game's phobias and obsessions and the broken past that you make up for the characters I think also internalize those same character building pieces which I think are very very cool and create really potentially dynamic characters how did you cut like I know that Annihilation and the other media touch points that you mentioned were big influences but and we talked a little bit about like narrative structure off mic did we talk about it in the introduction maybe I don't remember but <laughs> what is, but, existence? What is but what is on? What mic? is what is off, mic? Hello, Mike. Hello, listeners. You're here in the room with us. But so, how did you come to like pick these pieces of character creation in the onboarding process? Like, I know that probably went through many iterations, but why did we settle on this last bit here?
2: Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. I, I, for me, it was really about asking, and, and I got to say, this is one of my favorite things about the direction that I'm seeing. A lot of the basically like the entirely indie know RPG sphere moving towards is instead of asking how do we simulate this experience mm-hmm. so I feel like the thing that d is great at is saying like I want to simulate the experience of just going around and punching things <laughs> or stabbing things or you know shooting things with with bows or setting them on fire with magic or non-magical means and and there's just enormous amount of mechanical build out for that. And one of the ways you could think about it is you could say, well, here's this world, and these are the things that are gonna happen in this world, and so everything in the character sheet then ends up being the the set of things you need to correctly simulate. That's almost like the programming of a computer. And I think what I see I'm very, very inspired by the world of like Hollywood screenwriting, for example, or any kind of screenwriting, you know, novel writing, storytelling, where you start with the character, you figure out what's the experience you kind of want the person watching the, the movie or reading the book to have. And you start with a character and then build the world based on what does the character need to experience? Because the audience is going to be invested in the characters, the character and characters of the story. You want to take them on this journey and you can design everything based on, on that. And so, very similar to what you were describing with character arcs, for me, what I knew was that I wanted the experience of completely self-destroying your character, like having your character go through mutation and annihilation. Right? Mm-hmm. So it's, to me, the core of this genre is going into a place with some predetermined notions about your identity And having something you don't understand, like literally physically mutate you and change you and make you experience like horrors and wonders beyond your comprehension until you like are turned to dust or whatever it is that ends up happening to you. And so then I asked myself, and this is the UX designer side of me, I asked myself two things really. What are the things that the players need to be successful at this? And also, What's the limit of information that I can put in front of them that they're actually going to take in? Because mm-hmm. one th- one thing that I, I, I noticed in my play of Archipelago, like Archipelago is a very lightweight game, but it has like six moves. And I only remembered like one move. Mm. And in my day-to-day as a UX designer, in my career as a UX designer, the thing that has always come back over and over again as a lesson that I've had to learn the hard way over and over again is even when you think you have a small enough amount of stuff on the page that people can make good choices, you still have too much on the page and -hmm. like that little like graphical element or that, you know, Oh yeah, I'm sure I can put an extra button here. It'll be fine. will still to someone who's kind of coming to it feel overwhelming. Like I always assume that everything is overwhelming all the time. Mm -hmm. And so Those are two competing forces. So on the what do people need to be successful, I said to myself, okay, like if they are going to self-destroy their characters, they kind of need to know where their characters are coming from. And so each character has uh, a pre-built kind of narrative, like, you know, you're the soldier, you've done atrocious things in the war, and like now you're trying to come to terms with that, or you're the bureaucrat who sent people into the zone for some amount of time, you know? Could it be decades? Is it months? Is it years? Do you even remember? Who ran experiments on the local population before you were cut off and you, you're looking for absolution? Or you the writer who just hasn't been able to, like, write a single word for a decade, you know? So, I yeah. So I, I, I give people, like, a little bit of a starting point. But then... I asked myself, what are the next little things that people can hook off of? Because there's two things that matter here, too. One of them is you need to know what you want to do to your own character. But also, if you want other players to create worlds and situations that will put your character in situations where they will change, they need to be able to see what's going on with you. Mm-hmm. And so I asked myself, what's the smallest amount of information I can put on a character sheet that will help people answer those questions when they're directing a scene and the scene says, you know, a horrible monster shows up that triggers someone's phobia. They need to be able to really quickly see, Hey, like, Hey everybody, like tell me what your phobias are again. Whereas if I have a character sheet that has 12 different elements on it, then that'll slow everything down to crawl. Mm -hmm. People won't be able to, to very quickly ask each other, Hey, like what's that thing that you've got? Mm -hmm. So giving people more ends up actually being less. And the reason I ended up with the, the obsession and the, the phobia was because something that was very clear to me at the beginning of the game is I didn't want it to just be like grim, dark horror. Like, I actually think that if you just have horror and you don't have the magic to balance it out, then you end up with a little bit of a one-note experience. Some of the best horror has this kind of sublime thing. Like H.R. Giger's Alien is both like absolutely disgusting, but also kind of beautiful. And so I needed to give people like a positive impetus that the zone could use to tempt them. Mm-hmm. So if your obsession is that you are just looking for inspiration, you're the writer, you're looking for, for, for something that'll get that creative spark going, then, I mean, I had an experience of the zone a few months back where the zone manifested. It's just a, a book signing, a really weird fungal book signing that, kind of seduce the author into it to give them that sense that they were, that they, they they mattered again. Right. So I want the zone to have something to seduce you with. And then I also want to have the zone, have something to terrify you with. Mm -hmm. And then the next element on top of that is I want those things to be in the control of the players because, and this is entirely cribbed off of bluebeard's bride, but there is nothing scarier than what's already in your own head. Mm -hmm. And so that's why jump scares kind of fall flat for me. So if I give people the framework to opt in to some kind of prompts, because, and this comes back to the accessibility question, people are just starting the game out. They don't know what the game's going to be. So if they haven't played before, they might not be able to come up with a good phobia or an obsession the first time around. Or if they kind of know the genre, they want to, explore a specific thing then they can kind of write it into them and that way the whole table knows and and this also comes back to safety as well and to, mm-hmm. to calibration tools right to make mm-hmm. sure that you're having the right experience at the table if i know that when i create a scene um, that is just full of spiders that i'm doing that because the character playing the entrepreneur has a terrible phobia of, of spiders but that the player who's playing that character, really wants to explore that, then we can play pretty hard and everyone's going to be safe and everyone's going to be having, as, as players, the experience that they want to have. And the characters are also going to be encountering the horrors that are going to push them to new heights. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll say one last thing, which is... There's also the idea of the broken life. And there's a reason that there's no prompts there. It's just it, that's one part of the character sheet that you, you actually have to fill out. Mm-hmm. And that's a trick from UX facilitation, where when you ask someone to think about something, you are guiding them in a certain way. Like questions aren't. So even the question, what are you most afraid of? at the beginning of a, of a you know, TTRPG is going to guide the game in that direction. Mm-hmm. I, I was looking at, you know, I really love... gion uh, Shim just makes the most incredible games. I know I know you, you, you know her, and I was looking at the, the beta of the Witch's, Witch's Cottage that she just posted, and she has this question in it. You have a small livestock. What individual did you, not the witch, rear from infancy? What did you name it, and what is your relationship with it like? And I'm like... Okay, it's gonna die. It's gonna it's gonna get sacrificed. No. I, I just know, you know. So questions are neutral, and so if I ask you to think about what is this character's broken life, then I'm putting you in the mindset of the character who has chosen to go on a mission. They probably are not gonna. They like. There's no evidence they're going to be able to come back from this mission, and I want people to confront that so that they are also thinking about why would you do that Mm -hmm. to raise the stakes and make it so that when you get to the center, there's as good a chance as possible that you're going to ask a really juicy question of the zone, which is all the other players. So it all loops around. And and I I think a lot about how can, can a single question have many, many purposes? And there were more questions in earlier versions of the game and different ones and I just tried really hard to collapse it down. And, and I'll just say one last thing. I feel like if <laughs> there's a lot to say about every part of this. So yes, just, just yes. stop me.
0: Stop me if you need to. I but, can't. The show doesn't allow it.
2: Excellent. <laughs> the other restriction, and this was inspired by... This is a game that Jason Morningstar and Randy Lubin made called Honor Bound. The character sheets in LARP have to be small enough that you can uh, carry them around with you. Mm-hmm. And I love that creative restriction because... If I could imagine the ideal place where someone could play the zone, it would be just, like, around a campfire.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: and I haven't solved for the fact that that would mean all the cards in the center would be immediately incinerated, <laughs> you know? Maybe maybe the, the premium Kickstarter tier will have uh, fireproof cards. We'll see. Just yeah. covered in Nomex. But anyway, I, I, I had that creative restriction for myself of, like, I want the character sheets to be small enough that you can hold them. And then I also want them to be—for to, to, you to be able to, like, flip them inside out when you die so that— you still end up with a little booklet, but now you've got the flipped inside out. you are dead. Here are the moves you can do booklet.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And so again, that was like, well, I've only got space for three questions. And that was really clarifying, actually. Mm-hmm. really, really helpful. So it so it comes back to UX design question of what's the information I want you to see on the inside of your booklet? And when you put your booklet on the table, there's questions that the shorter version of those questions, the instruction is like write in really big letters the one-word version of your phobia and your obsession so that other players can see it from across the table. So it's all, like, the UX design, the communication design that ends up driving, like, what I limit myself to in in that Mm -hmm. UX. And then in the game, in the digital version, it's kind of the same thing. If I keep it really pithy and kind of short, then I can reuse it in a lot of places. Uh, Mm -hmm. Whereas if I have, like, a, a hundred different things, then I get confused. That's really... The short answer to all this is because I would personally get confused as the game designer if there was more
0: stuff to worry about. Yeah, I mean, we end up designing the game that we want to play. So, you know, there's truth. There's truth to that. Yeah, there's I mean, I think that's something I'm struggling with in a lot of my designs is that they end up bloating real hard. Like as I continue to write, like I had an idea for A Devil May Cry, like action thing where he has like a step die system and then that got really blown like okay i need to kick this to the can right now because i can't even parse like what i want to do here and then i had another game that was a combination of like uh a game called drifter by andreas walters and metal weave games where it takes Hyperlight drifter and turns that into a tabletop game that's it's a very gorgeous cool.
2: game that's such a gorgeous game
0: it's so good oh i God. love it yeah definitely a big fan of like I'm a big fan of the games that let you assemble their narrative. Like Hyperlight Drifter is like this. Dark Souls is like this. Hollow Knight is like this. Even, even Metroid Prime, like the early Metroid Primes are like this. Like, why is, why is Samus even here on this planet? Like, I know that she's a bounty hunter, but like, why? Why was Ripley created? All those sorts of things. So with but, you,
2: and also yeah. that kind of emergent narrative where like, it doesn't actually explain everything. Some of it's just, this is just in the world. You just mm-hmm. kind of, it's implied by the things that you run into and
0: these weird characters and, and, and,
2: and it doesn't feel the need to spell it all out because you're just mm-hmm. bathed in it. You're just experiencing it.
0: Yeah. And I love, I love when a story lets you theory craft. Like I love where like, what if the knight? like, I love the theory that the knight is actually the old pale king just reincarnated like that's one of my favorite theories it's just an endless loop that happens over and over and over again is like the bugs life right like it, the conspiracy theory goes so deep <laughs> it's like did they, did team cherry mean to do this
2: theory crafting like headcanons. i'm obsessed with all that yeah oh man have you have you seen Snow uh, snowpiercer yeah have you seen charlie and chocolate factory
0: yes and the thing the thing that the they're linked yeah have you seen the theory yeah <laughs> It's, it's, it's i love that
2: stuff i i think no they, i think like, headcanon just makes just makes all of these things so much so much better
0: and it, again that's like that's practices in in like stratagems and tactics and connections and all those things but to bring it back to to the zone yeah i i really love how this game gives you so i played halfway through a solo version because eventually I got tired of being the director every single time. And I was like, damn it. I need friends. But I picked the writer. I picked that. Jeremy, I, if you
2: want to, if you want to play a game, like I will gladly play a game with you and grab uh, a couple of other people. I think that would be really fun.
0: Yes. Yes. Let's do it. I, I picked the writer. I made, I chose that. I wanted the Pulitzer prize. I'm trying to remember from yesterday the P- Pulitzer Prize, and I hated Doctor F- Fitzgald. I think is the name uh, D. Fitzbaker, your nemesis, <laughs> D. Fitzbaker. Yeah, so I chose my nemesis, and I chose that I wanted a Pulitzer Prize, and then in the in the fill in prompt for the broken life, I said or broken past, I said that I don't want to live in his shadow anymore. I cannot leave this place without findings. Uh, and I was obsessed with like ancient language basically. So I thought I was like, okay, maybe there's like alien scriptures, or some Aztec ish or like yeah. that sort of thing. So my whole drive for continuing to the zone is like, I can't go back. Cause my back life is that I'm second barrel, I'm always going to live in this guy's shadow until I find something that he himself wasn't willing to do. And that's what will push me uh, forward into the zone. So what I liked about that experience is that you have to, and what I similarly felt about heed the call is that I think where D and D falls flat for me in terms of character creation is that it doesn't tell you what your goal is. Yeah. It, never, it never gives you a reason to, to fight the dragon, right? Do you fight the dragon to protect the people? Sure, that's a reason. But oftentimes, it's not what it sets up for you. And that's sort of like, oh, that's obvious. And then everyone's trying to, like, figure out what their story is 20 sessions later. And then they finally decide, like, oh, this is why I'm a part of this adventuring party, right? So I think what's more powerful and, again, helps the onboarding process is to say, like, this is why you're doing this narratively. And you, you have to play into that. Like you, you have to take the conceit that I'm here to find answers for a Nobel prize. And I'm here to get to the center of this place and get my wish granted so that when I go back, I have a good life. But me as the player knows that when I reach the center or if I reach the center, as long as I'm in the zone I'm gone. I'm Dunzo's. I'm turning into an a, eternal scriber who writes the stories of everyone else who comes into the zone. I am a desk. Actually, now that I say it out loud, I now imagine myself as a desk that people are forced to sit at, and then they're just journaling until they turn into skeletons, and then I'm just a pile of desk skeletons. That's
2: so sick. I love it so much. <laughs> you, you have no idea how much I love hearing the stories that people come up Uh because people they they go on this journey they're like okay well if i really wanted this more than life itself what what would i become and it just gets so weird so quickly
0: so lovecraftian in a way right Mm -hmm. the other thing i really like about the zone and that you sort of touched on when you were talking about that players become a part of the zone as they begin to decease or transform destruct annihilate uh is the concept of, like, post-elimination mechanics. So I had another guest that hasn't come out yet, but his name is Andy Berdan. He wrote a game called Mic Drop, and he talked about... We talked a little bit about, like, post-elimination mechanics, about how games like... One Night Werewolf isn't particularly fun when you're eliminated. And then you have to wait for the game to finish before you play again. Yeah, you just
2: twiddling your fingers.
0: Yeah. It's super boring, and, like, this, I'm sure someone's like but the fun is in watching like the werewolf be discovered I don't think so have you actually played a game of werewolf where you like didn't make it like you were the first to die <laughs> not not a great time where in uh, contrast there's another social deduction game that I really like called blood under the clock tower mm, i don't know or I'm sorry bl- blood on the clock tower what was that I don't know that one Yeah, uh, really great game. Highly recommend it. Basically, similar vibes. Everyone has a role. You have to find out who the demon is. And then when you find the demon, you win the game. And if you don't find the demon, you don't win the game. Or the demon wins the game. So it's competitive. But the two... Pieces of post-elimination, mechan- or three pieces, actually. Some roles only trigger their abilities when they die under certain circumstances. Everyone is allowed to continue to talk about clues of the game as if you were like a ghost or something like that to influence the other players. So it's like you're a minion helping the bad team. You can still continue to spread misinformation as you talk about the game. And then when you die, you get to hold on to one final vote like it's the it's the narrative like, oh, I spelled out the name of the murderer in blood or I'm pointing in some like secret door direction that no one's discovered yet. And it's like that sort of narrative. But you get this one final vote as a ghost that you can save for any point of the game, which could help everyone additionally. And even if you vote, you still continue to get to play and p- produce information. Whereas in like mm. Werewolf, you're sort of encouraged not to speak anymore once you're removed from the game so i think with this post elimination mechanic thinking about like now you become the zone if your character dies you now become the zone whereas in contrast to D is like once you die you have to make a new character unless right. you know resurrection or whatever that looks like and that sort of emergent storytelling but the post elimination mechanic is long like in between there's a long stagnant pause of like, I have to create the character or the team has to figure out how to get me revived in a short amount of time. And then you're like hand wave. And that also comes at the expense of like nuanced hand waving, like, Oh, you can get to the church in the very next scene and do that whole thing as well. But those are all things that you have to sort of like labor into it. Whereas the zone provides it like in mechanic, which is great. Yeah.
2: That's very intentional. And there's a few things there that are worth kind of, Poking out from a design perspective, mm-hmm. so one is just in general. I think the beauty of play to lose games in general is that they don't need to be balanced. I mean, mm-hmm. sounds like we are both into roguelikes. Yeah, uh,
0: like I, you know, I love the pain. <laughs> in
2: twenty twenty, I put like seven hundred hours into Spelunky two. For example, <laughs> I don't know if you have played it, but yeah. It's absolutely, it's a brutal game, you know, when you first start playing, like, your runs last 15 seconds, you immediately like, jump on a bat and fall in some spikes and die. And the, the, the beauty of that, and, like, for example, Slate Aspire, I think, is such a great example of a game that really understands its medium, because one game you play, you die, like, three levels in, and you get, mm-hmm. you know, eaten by a mouse or whatever, it was, like, first level enemies and then another game you might get you know the the the, the poison that you can throw at other mm-hmm. at your enemies and the card that doubles damage that then you multiply by to you enhance to make it triple damage
0: mm-hmm.
2: and and so on and so on until you're just like chewing your way through the yeah, discovering enemies.
0: those synergies.
2: And it feels really good. And I think play-to-lose games have this that same kind of vibe in RPGs where instead of having to play this kind of balanced experience of trying to come up with an encounter, like the dragon has to match the skills of the, the players. Mm. And like I saw this, this thread on Twitter that made me cry. It was like, how many of you uh, GMs have accidentally killed your players? And I'm like, that's so sad, you know, like... The idea that you could just play an RPG and have to and just like accidentally kill everyone just because the game is set up in such a way that you actually have to get balance right and think about these things. Like that's not what it that that's it's cool, but it's not nothing to do with story. So when you play play to lose, you can basically just go right into the most gonzo weird situations, knowing that the game will support you and convert your irresponsible actions into cool stuff. Mm -hmm. So that's why, you know, in the zone, like, core mechanic is not-so-easy cards, where every time you try and do something hard, you get a not-so-easy card. And not-so-easy cards is how you mutate. And the game incentivizes you to get not-so-easy cards because that gives you agency later when you are the zone over the fate (laughs) of the final player, if you need mechanical incentives. But really it's because the point of the game is that it's kind of fun to describe c- mutation. It's just mm-hmm. fun. It's just it's kind of neat. Everyone loves doing it, particularly to their own <laughs> characters. This is also why you choose your own mutation instead of rolling it on a table and having it done to you. Mm-hmm. Because what i want people to channel is that that creative energy of, "Oh yeah, i can i can mutate my own. I, oh, i get to decide?" Cool. Okay, they turn into, you know, oh, shit.
0: I have to write. You, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you gave me game idea. <laughs> write it down. Write it down. <laughs> you gave me game juice. I got to be real with you, man.
1: Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at Bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door.
2: Any conversation that causes a game idea to happen, I'm like, we would, I'm, I'm good, we succeeded, yeah, we did it. <laughs> so yeah, uh, so that that that's yeah. one thing, that's one thing about play to lose that I find really, really thrilling. And so then you ask yourself, okay, if I want people to have that experience, how do I support them? And I think this is another thing that comes from my, you know, background as a UX designer is basically saying, I can't ask people to do something unless I support them and give them the tools to do it. I just that it's without a GM to really guide the experience, the game has to guide itself. Mm -hmm. You know, the paper version guides itself to some extent, like the digital version really guides itself. Mm -hmm. And so that final incentive of, if you play the zone, you, your, your choices will matter. So you're still paying attention because you're going to have to decide stuff is one thing. Roguelikes are inspiring, In so many ways, but one thing that's important there is thinking about pacing. So, Mm -hmm. I can probably ask people to not pay attention to to like be the zone for the last like 35 minutes of the game. If it's two hours, then that might be a little bit thin, Mm -hmm. even though they're still playing the director. Like, the reality is that you do lose a little bit of investment when your character dies, but it's more than made up for by the fact that you're now able to fully focus on the the experiences of the other players who are, who are still there. And and, and I, I've noticed there's this thing that happens. I kind of call it the attentional campfire where, you know that thing where, like, you walk down the street, someone's looking up? Mm-hmm. And you go like, like this, you look up as well. And then if there's two people looking up, third person walks up, they look <laughs> up too. And before you know mm-hmm. it, there's 50 people looking up and there's nothing there. Mm-hmm. It's, we cue in to what other people are paying attention to. And so... This is maybe like a secret design thing I'm doing here, which is if there are players whose only thing they can pay attention to is the story being told, that turns the the final players into an attentional campfire where just the fact that everyone is paying attention to them makes them more epic. And you really feel it at the table. You feel that shift as people die... And, and it's, it's, it's all a balance, you know, it's all a balance. I want to, I, I'm kind of committed in an undying level to making play to lose games. Like I, pretty much every game I make is play to lose because, because of that.
0: Yeah. There is, what's interesting about play to lose. And it's almost like when we, when we think about the GM sort of riffing, riffing off of that. Because one thing to mention about blood, uh, blood Under the Clock Tower is it does require a GM. You, you need someone who can sort of like operate the room and facilitate the roles, powers, and the night and stuff. Or during the the trickery phase, which is what I call the night phases for games. But it's interesting that it's almost like a... Cause the director is like a GM full style design, right. Or GM less or whatever, whatever version of that spectrum you, you want to call that. But then there's also the secondary sort of concept. That's like GM growth or maybe a growth's mm-hmm. not the right word, but like, you're, you're gaining the role of GM over the course of the game by becoming the zone, right? I don't know how to, how to codify that in like a simple term, but, or jargon or whatever, but it's really fascinating that that's sort of the shape the game takes on is that you will grow into the GM role as the game progresses, especially with more mutates and stuff. And then, you you may get the player that's like, ooh, cool. I want to try and like build as many mutates as possible because I want to have some like good authority over the course of the game. So I wanna to get to like the mm-hmm. what is it? The library or the, the office. Like I want to get to at least the office so that when the when the final center is oh, happening I mean, I... The, those
2: those locations are totally random, by the way. So every, oh, every game oh. is different. Heard. heard. I really like it's there's a lot of roadlike inspiration there. Every time you create a new game, the cards create a different zone.
0: I, I love emergent like map building for sure. Like I, that's why I really like iron sworn a ton is that it has those emergent space, like has you, gives you boxes, but also gives you like tags and things to add to the games. Is your, is your desk slowly lowering?
2: It's lowering. It's <laughs> lowering.
0: My legs got tired. That's super. I was like, is the camera an AI? <laughs> Do you have a robot behind you? <laughs>
2: am I a robot? This is what a year of work from home will like get you to do. <laughs> yeah,
0: I, I love it. I need it. I want a <laughs> robot that helps me, Siri, turn yourself into anyways. don't respond to me, but yeah, it's I think it's a fascinating concept about like a game that has a gm growth mechanic in that if you if you're the kind of person that's is okay with watching things unfold, maybe you take less mutates, like maybe you kind of position yourself to. I'll exit after like card three, like map card three or whatever. And maybe you're the person like, Ooh, I really have some good ideas. I want to get to like card six and then, you know, we'll talk about what my character looks like at that time. So I I think it's really fascinating about like a GM growth tech that's here in present. I can't, I think there are other games that maybe also do this too. Maybe it's like things like flashbacks or offerings and blades in the dark sort of have like a GM growth sort of thing there because they're like imagining the narrative moving forward with like flashbacks and things. Yeah, GM Growth. Interesting. That's, you
2: know, it's really inspiring for me to hear you hear you say that because that's that's not an angle I'd specifically thought about there because mm-hmm. I'm so in like you don't need a GM land. I also really, you know, I love games that are GM'd, and I think GMing mm-hmm. is like its own like amazing art form. And and thinking about the progression of games that'll turn you into the GM that you want to be. Instead of it being like either you're GMing or you're not. I played Banner Blades with with Randy and some other friends. Like uh, yeah, like really well. Just so much depth there. And I was actually pretty I, I struggle with deep mechanical games because my brain just, like, doesn't work that way. Like, I mm. this is this is why I think, like, the whole, like, D&D-style combat, I, I love it in a computer game context because mm-hmm. there I can just think about what I want to do. But if I'm running it, then I, I'm constantly having to think about mechanics versus the story. And I, I, it's, it's a little bit overwhelming until you've done it a bunch of times.
0: You have to be the scripted programming. Yeah. As everyone else gets to just operate the programming
2: and that bums me out because i want i want computers to do the things that computers are amazing at and people to do the things that people are amazing at Mm. and so that and 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 that's actually that's what's so exciting about all these kind of new platforms coming out but randy had randy is like a mechanical genius and so we were like okay i'll be the mechanics gm he said "and, and i'll be the story and that was really cool but by the end of the first session i picked up enough of the mechanics that he was able to kind of fully transfer that over to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I I love that. I love that idea of thinking about how do you get people into a place where they are going to be able to succeed mm-hmm. and, you know, meet them where they are instead of just giving them a tome. Another mm-hmm. good example of this is Star Wars, Edge of the Empire, mm-hmm. um, has this uh, quick start first game you can play. And it literally has like, box out if players do this as the gm read this out if players do this box out as the gm read this out Mm -hmm. so it it walks you through every single step of that first kind of setting as the gm Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's kind of scripted it's on the rails it really is that kind of you know jrpg style like i've been playing for three hours and the game tells you and now the tutorial is over yeah (laughs) like what
0: (laughs) I knew how to cast fire from day one. I was there when the scriptures were written. <laughs> <laughs>
2: 700 hours in. Tutorial yeah. now over. You can yeah. now enter the real world.
0: And isn't that yeah. just life, right? You hit 18 and the tutorial stage is over. I am um, pretty sure that the
2: tutorial stage of life never
0: <laughs> never ends. <laughs> never. But another good comparison is when you think about like, putting people in places they want to be. I also think about like business, right? Like jobs, careers, like there's so many, like in my experience, I've seen so many instances of people being like a, a square block being forced into a round hole because they just need that spot filled by anyone. And that person's not happy with what they're doing. They don't feel fulfilled. They don't feel like they're exercising their autonomy in a way that feels satisfying to them. And like, instead, why don't you just talk to a person? Like, I remember having a conversation with an old friend about how she was running a grocery store and one of her employees is on the phone all the time. Doesn't really engage with customers, hangs out the register a bunch, but she loves driving like she loves making the delivery trips and she's she also talked about how she wanted to expand like delivery jobs like okay cool so instead of having that person on the register why don't you just let them be your delivery person and yeah it's like i just don't know why that's not more obvious when it comes to like working with other human beings and like trying to just fill holes and i think this happens more at like um This is my intuitions and my personal opinion coming from a jaded restaurant working experience. But I feel like it's more of like blue collar jobs Mm. that just say like, I want a warm body here to fill this menial task so that my job can continue or my business can continue to function and I can continue to rake in whatever dollars I'm raking in or whatever. And then yell at those people when they don't operate at full capacity because (laughs) that's not what they want to do. So.
2: Dude, like th- this is this is just a massive tangent, but I I think, yeah, I saw I saw this uh, this document go by yesterday on on that that was a it was like a white supremacist analysis of capitalism and mm-hmm. was just looking at how some of these value systems around the things that you're describing like they're just so baked deep into the culture mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I it's funny like I studied economics before becoming a designer and economics the kind of founding myth of modern economics is Adam Smith and the pin factory. And the idea of like, instead of having this one artisan making pins, you could specialize and have a production line with 18 different people doing the same task a bunch of times. And then like, you know, turn of the 1900s, you've got Taylorism and scientific management, right? This whole idea of as a manager, I can measure people's output, which all started with measuring people producing steel bars but then, like, 50 years later, you start seeing it applied to everything and to, like, knowledge work as well, to, like, mm-hmm. the, the fuzzier things. And now it's, like, metastasized into this, like, horrifying gig economy where, the, like, Amazon workers, like, running around peeing in bottles because the machine is black mirroring them into into an algorithm. Mm-hmm. Just So like massively oversimplify the hundreds of yes, years of evolution. But, like, I do think there's a cognitive style there of people as resources, which I would love to replace with a cognitive style of, Hey, like people are like amazing, creative individuals. And how do we create a society that nurtures everyone? Like at whatever level they're at, just like help mm. them support them, take them wherever they want to go. You know, that should be mm. like the principle of
0: designing all of society.
2: Huge tangent from TTRPG. Design.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but- Find the utopia. And isn't every utopia just a dystopia uh- for someone else. But, Anyways. You know,
2: it, it's funny because like, it, it, it one of the crushing things about being a, a game designer and a designer is you're just like, you spend all your time thinking, how can I create the best experience for people? And you mm-hmm. just want the whole world to work that way, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but, Everyone should think like this. Let's support each other. It's a bushy-tailed raft just being... <laughs> a utopian optimist.
0: Amazing. Any other? This has felt like 25 minutes, but we're at an hour and a half oh at, at this exact stage, and we have two lightning rounds to get to. Is there anything else you want to add as a part of uh, the zone conversation? I'll,
2: I'll just, I just, I just want to say like I'm just excited. Like I feel like I'm part of. I just feel like I'm part of like a just like a this huge community of people who are just asking themselves how can we design games that are more accessible in like mm-hmm. every sense of the word and. It's just exciting. It's just exciting to to see that direction and see people breaking down, like, all the types of accessibility, right? Mm-hmm. Like, from, you know, economic accessibility and race and neurodivergence to also just, like, the accessibility of, like, how long have you been playing games in the first place? And yeah, I I, I just want to express my, like, undying kind of love and admiration for, for the fact that I know there's so many game designers working on this right now. And, and that that was a big thing for me in The Zone. And it's... It's just been, it's just been a really cool thing to get to, to play around with.
0: Awesome. What a beautiful note end. First one being RAF trends what's good what's up with those so are there any trends that you're seeing in your social circles that are really like pinging on you over and over again They're like oh i love that this person and this person and this person are all working on this similar trend are there any trends within yourself that you want to speak into the ether that you want like you would love for someone else to run with uh, are there any trends that you feel are being detractive or subtractive from the industry that you want to caution people against? Like, don't believe the hype that it is, sort of thing.
2: Ooh,
0: ooh, the
2: I like that. That last one's like, give me, give me that hot take question.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's time for here's hot the thing
2: podcast hot take.
0: Just, the, I don't want everyone's really scared because it feels like. Uh, an opening to a dunk session and that's you know the only two things i dunk on super hard on this show are D and critical role and that i don't <laughs> think i'll be able to let that go but this you know i'm not trying to foster a space where we can talk negatively about someone but it's it's things yeah. like you know someone pushing back against the idea of bio right like totally yeah it's those sorts of conversations that need or like how people like to break the illusions of like massively successful Kickstarters that already had opening money. And you know, it was the whole thing with, Oh shit. What was the game? The quest guy quest RPG. Oh yeah. That, that did like the zine quest stuff and was like, but that's not what like the culture is about. And you're asking for like hundreds of thousands of dollars, dude, (laughs) (laughs) like God damn it. And just sort of like tainting that, that sort of pure, pure experience. So yeah. Anyways, Trends, anything, anything yeah. that's on on and, on your radar.
2: Well, and I'm right there with you, by the way. Like, I, I actually, I, I personally have like a no dunk rule. Yeah, where I just think I was just listening to. There's a podcast I love, which is like their Craig Mazin and uh, I'm afraid the second guy, but Script Notes. Craig Mazin's guy. Mm-hmm. He, he's the screenwriter for Chernobyl, and mm-hmm. they've been doing. They are 500 episodes into this podcast. It's astonishing. Wow. Just like an hour a week of uh, screenwriting advice, and they were talking about how basically how much critics suck because you ever heard that ira glass quote about how we get into a creative universe or creative profession because we got taste we see a movie or we see a game and we think man like i love this it's given me ideas i think i i think i i think i can make something here and, and you, you feel like you have enough taste that you can create in this space but your skill level is way lower than your taste for a long time mm-hmm. and our glass calls this the gap where in that gap you are trying to catch up to your taste and your taste is also getting better the more you do it so it's like it's running away from you and the most important thing you can do is just just keep going just don't stop mm-hmm. you know because you'll get there and and i feel like dunking and and and, and criticism not critique for criticism hmm I I always want to assume that everyone is I just want everyone to feel like they are supported in overcoming that gap and dunking just never gets you there because Mm-mm. you don't know where someone's coming from they didn't ask mm-hmm. for your 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 criticism and in anyway dunking particularly if you're on a personal level you're just just kind of being a dick just don't do that you know
0: yeah yeah it's a
2: long but- game play the infinite game Play the
0: yeah <laughs> the, the beyond the long game. game yeah the beyond a control deck yeah
2: yeah yeah I, and so I mean I, I do want to connect it to a trend too which is I think that the so that's a criticism and dunking is really bad and growth and improvement comes from critique and from structured knowing how to ask for feedback in the right way and, mm-hmm. and also knowing how to, you know, receive feedback like o- over like a hundred, you know, humans played the zone. And this is where like, I'm, as a UX designer, being able to bring my practice of knowing how to run a play test and how to get feedback in the right way really helped me to make the game better because, you know, sometimes the <laughs> playtest test is brutal mm-hmm. and there is a skill in, in, in kind of knowing how to turn that into like useful critique In a design sense, we're like, criticism is, I think this sucks. Critique is, I understand the goals of what you're trying to do, and I think you're not hitting these goals in this way, this way, and this way. And I can't remember who said this, but if someone tells you about their experience, believe them. If they tell you how to fix it, never believe them. Mm -hmm. It's like the Mm -hmm. golden rule of playtesting. And so I think that's where I would go in in terms of the last question you asked, where I think that... Twitter is a horrible environment for all of this. Like mm-hmm. All of social media is a horrible environment for this. Discord's a little bit better. But one trend I think that I'm, I'm kind of excited about and that I'm also like a... a I, I want to, you know, write more about and help kind of support people in this is, is like how do we get better as a community balancing that desire to support each other with also that, that, that the you know, the skill of playtesting, the skill of critiquing each other in a way that is consensual or like you're not dunking on someone, you're not just giving unsolicited advice, but as a community, we'd level each other up. Like, you know, essentially like it's pointing out the salad in your teeth. Like I want people to critique the zone, but it's my job as a game designer to create the environment for that to happen. Mm -hmm. And, and the environment, the social media environments we're interacting with are just like super toxic to that. So also realizing the water we're swimming in is toxic. Mm-hmm. I, I do have to give a plug for, for example, like the tabletop Colin show. I, I cannot tell you how much I love that you and, and Adam are creating this structure. Cause to me, like that's the beginning of like knitting together the community in like a slightly different way than just, mm-hmm. Hey, we're just tweeting at each other. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> so I love seeing those kinds of spaces. Like that's a trend that I think is really cool. Like just better and more humane social spaces where we can like mm-hmm. get to know each other. And and really like bring the community together. I think the other, the other really obvious trend is just like web, web stuff, right. You know, how things are moving onto the web. It, it's, t- 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 we're just scratching the surface. Mm-hmm. There's so many things to talk about there. I will call out just one specific thing, which is the concept in design called skeuomorphism. I can, and I'll just define it for folks. Cause I hate, I hate bringing jargon into any kind of conversation, but mm-hmm. skeuomorphism is, you remember, like the first iPhone. You go to, like the calendar app, and there'd be, or sorry, the notes app, there'd be like the little torn paper at the top, Mm -hmm. and there's a little fabric background. It kind of looks like pages. So Mm -hmm. skeuomorphism is basically when you design something and you are bringing in the cues from a, like, say, the physical version of something into the digital version, even though those aren't necessary. Mm -hmm. So so skeuomorphism is any time that you're basically saying, I'm going to, like, teach you how to use something by making it look like something you're familiar with. Like the notes app, it looks like a notepad. If you start a new note, it kind of flips a new page, that kind of thing. And it's, it's good in small doses because it gives people enough information to kind of get started. But in the long run, it's the kind of thing that it kind of gets in the way, or it can be kind of weird. Like on my mic right now, there's a dial that I turn because it's easy to turn stuff with my fingers, but in a web UI or like a computer UI, Turning a dial is super hard. You got your mouse. You're like oh rotating. It's like that's a good that's a good example. Of like bad skewmorphism. It's like no. It's like it's not native to the thing you're doing.
1: Mm. And so
2: right now we're in this skeuomorphism land with virtual tabletops, where basically what they're doing is they're saying, let's take the thing you're doing in the real world and we'll just exactly copy it to the computer world. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's for like Roll Twenty Tabletopia Tabletop Simulator. Are replicating the, the the fiddliness of like moving <laughs> cards around a table, and that's a great first step. That's a skeuomorphic first step. The first iPhone had all of that because you needed it to get people accustomed to this new world. Mm. But it's just the first step. And I'll just say, when I was building the zone, the first month I I built a virtual tabletop. Like I'll I'll, have, I'll show it to you if you want. Like you know you 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 could drag the cards around. You could. There were, like, cool particle effects when you dropped a card on the table. And, like, Mm -hmm. when you picked up the card, it did that Hearthstone. Like, it would, like, follow the the, the mouse around, and it would kind of, like, rotate in cool little ways and stuff like that. And and (laughs) I built it, and I kind of did my first, like, pseudo-play test with myself. Mm -hmm. And I realized that basically every single... Except one place where at the end of the game you have to like give not-so-easy cards to someone else. Every single interaction with the table where I could freeform pick up a card and put it somewhere else would break the game. Oh, God. Right? like, And and I mean in a literal sense. It's like you set up the spiral at the beginning of Mm -hmm. location cards. If I give you the ability to pick up a location card and put it somewhere else that in the spiral... You broke the game. Yeah, yeah. If I let you, like, freeform pick up a card from a deck and then it's just now on the table, it's just a mess. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, oh, crap. Like, <laughs> del- you know, threw that all away and started again because cause, cause, cause realize that the, the cards are actually just a means to an end. What the cards mm-hmm. are doing is they're saying, I want to have a sequence of locations that you go through one by one. At each part, you can ask certain questions. You guide the players. You tell them who's the director. They can draw cards in certain decks. But decks are just a way of saying, I want to have a stack of information in a certain order that's yep. shuffled. Uh, the deck's just like the skeuomorphic way of doing it. It's like in the real world, do that with paper. The digital world, what's the right way to do it? Well, it's, it's a different way. Mm-hmm. And so I am, right now there's this huge barrier to entry where there's a lot of folks in the community who are like me, who like really know how to code. Like There's like a surprising number, I think. Mm. but there's still a pretty high barrier to entry because it's it's a lot of work to learn how to make software. Mm. But then again, like, layouts of a high barrier to entry. So mm-hmm. I, I just know that... I see, like, the 20-year-olds who are making, like, insanely awesome games on Itch, and I'm like, you can learn to do everything I can do at, like, 10 times the speed because your brain is operating, like... <laughs> you're galaxy-braining, and I already feel like I'm just, like, decrepit, you know? But I think it's those folks who are we're kind of going to create that next generation. That's what I'm trying to explore with the zone. Mm -hmm. I think the zone is in this weird place where I'm able to do it because I already have these skills and I'm hoping that the next step is going to be people building tools like, you know, Randy Lubin's building story synth, for example, Mm -hmm. but building tools that make it possible for people with like less of this like technical background to build experiences that are native to being online and playing online that are not just trying to like take the physical thing and make a worse version of it Mm -hmm. with weird card physics where you like you you move it like a pixel that like flies off the the table into the into foreverness that's probably the second that's 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 the trend that i'm most excited about from like a mechanics perspective
0: and again I think it it's full circle this idea of of self destruction or or removal character growth it's like I feel like there's a Yeah when you talk about that skeuomorphism it's the sense of like traditionalism where oh cards look and feel like this and so that's how they must look and feel at all times when they're being engaged and that's not necessarily true like it's the it's also the difference of like rolling dice physically and doing a number generator, right? Like, yeah. Why? I know that people, or I've heard people complain about like, oh, uh, a random number generator isn't that random, and like, well, neither is like a dice, a, pl- a piece of plastic dice with holes in it, because one side is heavier <laughs> than the other. Like, it's yeah. not truly random. And fun fact, everyone, if you consider the number that's on a side of a dice, or the number of pips, whether that be a hole or paint, one side is heavier than the other by micrograms. And, like, (laughs) it's not even chances, no matter which way you cut it. So is it to a a that (laughs) that you actually give a damn? No, you know what I mean? Like, (laughs) there's no reason to care about that. But I'm just saying, a random number generator is fine as well as the dice. No, Jeremy,
2: um, like the, 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 the only thing computers are good at is we can finally simulate dice that have the same weight on every side. Yeah. That's it. That's the only
0: thing. Blank the, dice. The perfect Blank. D20. Blank perfect dice. <laughs> also, the D20 is the worst probability dice because the faces aren't even. I watched a, a oh too long video about polyhedral sides <laughs> and oh, I know a little too much.
2: You have to send this. I have to watch this. I'm pa- you know, okay. I have this, my mind works entirely in memes, but my mental image is Ash from alien, you know? And when he's like, <clears throat> it's the perfect organism, but across from him, isn't ex- a xenomorph, a xenomorph. It's a, a perfect D20. <laughs> 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 <It's> simulated to <laughs> inch uh, a micron. <laughs>
0: amazing (laughs) i'm gonna put a panning effect here but yeah the direction one to quote on like the dunk culture thing is like i totally agree i think there's a growth in skill that needs to happen when it comes to listening listening and then being able to parse information in a way that's not i don't want to say aggressive because i don't think that's quite the right feeling of it but more in the sense of like to understand that we are both talking about the problem, not the individual who created the problem, right? Like mm-hmm. how do we solve the problem? Not the individual. Cause I think that's where it goes a lot of the time. Like you as an individual are the problem of this game. And that's not true. And I think, Oh, I actually wrote it down here. The thing that I think is most harmful to the sort of like criticism, not critique infrastructure is like comments, like sites that put comments on things. Like Never when we talk comments. about, I, I hate it. <laughs> Like, I, I would be cool if a site didn't have... Well, here's the thing. A lot of people, a lot of consumers used reviews as a way to get a product. Like, oh, cool, enough people have, like, given this a thumbs up. It must be good. Like, there's been enough testing behind it or enough consumer response to it, right? And I think... To some extent, that's helpful. But the thing about like comments and like when I think specifically about like itch, right? When when someone's on there, it's like, hey, where's the game in this? There's only a page here and I paid, uh, you know, $8 for that. And that's not even terribly too much. Like, let's talk about the polishing that went into that single page product. Anyways, that's a whole other. Your one Starbucks Grande
2: Mocha's worth of. of
0: Don't even get me started. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, like comment section, Twitter, like. I just don't feel like those are the avenues to engage with reviewing a product and they don't create good ecosystems for critiquing. I think it has to be. And I think there is also a skill, like you said, that developers, creators, designers also need a way to like, this is the information I'm asking for. I'm not asking for what you think of the game as a whole. Right now I'm in the phase of like, how is combat Do you feel like combat works? Does it elicit these feelings? What are you feeling when combat is happening? Like those are the important questions I want answered this month, this week, whatever have you. And then that's where I'll go in and I'll just do the consumer feedback because if that's the direction you want your business or design to go to and that it's sellable for a wider demographic, you need that input to to be realistic about it in our current capitalistic (laughs) landscape. but. Yeah, it's, it's just something where we have to get away from talking about the consumption of product in a wide format. But then again, I don't know, it's like a it's like a catch 22 because it's also a way it's also a marketing tactic to have people talk about your product, whether it's discourse or not. And that's unfortunate that just like, what have I read? It's like, if you someone was talking about like, if you want to be successful in social media like you have to engage in discourse because that's how you get viral. Like those sorts of like discourse moments are viral moments. But then there's also like, I fight, I push back against that because in like, well, when someone produces something really helpful, that's also viral. Like someone who comes up with like an idea that's just so like universally resonant and clarifying for people. They're like, oh wow, this helps me help me make a lot of sense of something. Like when I think about reductive story structures, like save the cat and the hero's journey, That was my first step into parsing out like, okay, what is like the through line for this whole thing? Because before that, I, I never understood how a story operated, right? And then it's up to me as a creator to be like, okay, there are like some things about this that are helpful. And I think there are better clarifications for like creating a story like the ghost and lies and stuff I talked about earlier in the episode. So I think those are really really nice trends to talk about here i think they're really eye-opening
2: i I just want to riff on you riff off that because i think there's there's a thing there too which is something i think about a lot is is again like when are people set up to succeed and when people are set up to fail and Mm -hmm. you know i i'm just very sensitive to if i see a bad interaction in the internet or something like that first question i'm asking myself is okay Assume good intent. Obviously, the internet is full of Nazis and horrible, you know, there's yeah. there's, certain, there's certain things where I'm just like, you're just a terrible person.
0: Yeah, yeah, Walk. you can feel it. You yeah. Know.
2: But I think in the space of what we're talking about, which is like essentially a bunch of people who care about games and aren't trying to abuse each other, but end up having bad interactions, I ask myself, well, what's causing that? And I think it's really important to realize when, kind of like it's not your fault, it's kind of the environment of Twitter and of social media, which incentivizes hot takes and rage and, and mm-hmm. you know the all of you like a lie travels around the world you know before the the truth can catch up, or you know all the research and how like, Facebook did this research, they did their own research on this, and they found that posts that had more negative terms or negative negative you know affect like got shared more and I think constantly. I think the power of a like, culture, the power like, and again, like again, like, and kudos back to like, you know, you and like other folks who I, I really feel like the podcasts that we listen to, and the people who are hosting discords, like they, the brain trust, such like a lovely space, mm. and I, I think what what y'all are doing is you're 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 facilitating this conversation where the community can start processing all of this and come up with okay for us as a culture, like how do we fight back against that how do we create norms that we can all feel safe, like operating by. And like with that whole point of like dunking or or critique, like I think I I want, I want to spread far and wide this, this, this notion that before you leave a comment that your experience is valid of how you experience a piece of art. But if you want your experience, if you, you know, if you want to hurt the creator, sure. Just say the nasty thing you want to say. You shouldn't. But that's all that if you make it about you uh, then it's a one-sided conversation. If you want to have a dialogue with a creator, if creators want a dialogue with each other, that that core skill at the heart of it is first asking yourself what is this person trying to do? Because mm-hmm. if the person if you go to someone it's like there's only one PDF and I paid $8 and where's my 299 other <sighs> PDF, you know pages mm-hmm. then that's valid feedback if the person uh, who made the game is creating the expectation in some way of they are making traditional RPGs that are mm-hmm. rendered as page books. Like probably if you get a and d book and it arrives and you've got like your, your hard cut, I'm now picturing like, you know, I got my like Von, Von Richten's Guide to Ravenloft. because I'm so yeah. excited to see like the X card and everything make it. It's like the discourse, you know, like <laughs> I'm so, gl- I'm so glad to see all that stuff make it into like, tradi- you know, all the wonderful people who contributed to that. But if I'd gotten that and I have got like the, the thick hardcover, imagine like the hard, this is my mental image, the hardcover is like half an inch thick.
0: And yeah, I, yeah. I,
2: oh, I open the page, like, it's like, ugh, boom, and there's one page between the <laughs> two hardcovers. Then it would be valid for me to leave a comment on like Wizards <laughs> of the Coast and be like, hey, you've created an expectation that this is the kind of content I'm going to get and like, mm. this is not what I'm getting. Or similar things. Again, like, there's, I, I think the, the question asked is always like, what's the most productive, what's the way that, that of having a conversation that is, and again, this is not about like toxicity and abuse. Like that's a whole different set of techniques you have to, to bring out, like you have to mm-hmm. block people, you have to do moderation, you know, that, that's a a huge thing. But in, in this particular mode of like, how are you communicating to get the most creative conversation? Like the two questions that are most important are how do I how does this conversation strengthen our relationship? You know, how do I have this conversation in a way that will make us better friends or, you know, better, you know, collaborators. And then like the second question is like, how do I, do I understand enough of what you're trying to do to make you on, to, 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 give you feedback that you can use. If someone comes to me with the zone and says, Hey, like I tried to run uh and D in the zone and it didn't work. <laughs> and I'm like, Thank you for your feedback. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, okay, yes, there are no <laughs> the pregnant pause. There's, no, there's no, there's no stat blocks. Uh, oh, where are the stat blocks? But if someone comes to me and says, "Hey, like, I'm running," literally, you know, so I'm running D and D. And I, I kind of wanted to use the zone to generate this, like, really weird environment that, like, my, my you know, PCs could go explore. And, like, here's a few things that I noticed as I was going that made that, like, a little bit harder than they could have been that I'm mm-hmm. like, damn, that's awesome. Thank you for mm-hmm. your feedback. I really appreciate mm-hmm. that. And, like, I want to know you. You're like, thank you, thank you for your consideration giving you this feedback in such a, such a lovely and, like, thoughtful way. And it doesn't mean Mm -hmm. that the feedback can't be, like, very, you know, pointed. You know, some playtests are absolutely crushing. Mm -hmm. But some of the best friends I've made in the last few years have been friends I made in, like, pretty harsh, like, zone playtest feedback sessions. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know. It's all about vulnerability and just, like, caring.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's, I think there is a certain, like... It's not just onus on the other person to communicate things to you as well, but it's also, and everyone's mental capacity, emotional capacity, spiritual capacity is going to be different. But there is something to say about when you put your content out in the world, people are going to have ideas about it. And whether or not you're prepared for negative or positive feedback, you have to understand that people are going to say things about this thing because you have made the intention to share it with them. They're going to have thoughts. And for me, I guess I would much rather receive the honest thoughts of my work rather than like just sharing it with my very close friends. Like, Oh yeah, this is okay. That's not helpful to me. That's not going to help me improve or take on different perspectives. And I think it's, it's, I think it's a two way street here in that you also have to build up a tolerance not tolerance, because I don't want to make it sound like, like you don't have to put up walls to criticism or to critiquing. Because they, as we defined here today, criticism and critiquing are not the same things. But for critiques, it's you know you also be able to. You, there's a sort of intellect or knowledge or ability to sift through that information. It's like it's like if one person says your combat blows, you're like, oh, okay, well maybe not. Like that's not that doesn't tell me anything. But maybe there's something there. But if like fifty people tell you your combat blows even if it's not like succinct or positive there might still be something to that information because enough people said like there's something about this that they're not enjoying Mm. and now i have to like now this is where i build a form that talks specifically about the combat and like hey here are the components of this thing what's not going right for you right like the that sort of stuff and definitely ask different people not the people who are already negatively charged towards your combat that's so true
2: it's so true uh, and and look like even like as a in my practice as a, as a UX designer like my day job professional day job like even with a bunch of people who've been through design school or have been practicing this for a while it still requires intentional design to create the right environment for that stuff you know mm-hmm. when you have like the meeting where people come in and they present their work you know it does take some discipline to to say like Uh, you know, presented in the right way to give people enough context to, to know what you were trying to do. So they're judging it based on your goals, not just on their feelings. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's their intentional design of like communities for us to all, you know, help elevate each other is, is a thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's, it's really, I mean, I see it happening and it's, it's just really cool.
0: Well, I think that's a beautiful touch to put off on trends. We're in the last, Home stretch here Raf, in our two hour plus now interview which is great it's only felt like 30 minutes you're like
2: oh my god every extra
0: minute
2: editing that i have to do
0: <laughs> listen i have automated <laughs> programs i don't care about the clipping i'm fine <laughs> i'm so good and this is also why i timestamp during the episode so yeah Raph. Jeremy. Special tip, special tip here, TLDR. If anyone wants to scrub through and give me that juicy watch, the listen time without watch time as well. I don't know where this is going in the future. Listen time.
2: I watch, I stare carefully at my podcast, so I'm listening
0: to <laughs> I'm watching. I'm watching it it's actually fun fact i can't really listen to a podcast and do something else like i have to be there to listen and like maybe take notes or be immersed in my audio drama experience so i do carefully watch my podcasts Um,
2: now i'm picturing it's like if you're like the you know the the, the alien nemesis in some sci-fi movie it's like the one (laughs) way to stop you is to just play a podcast (laughs) like no
0: where's (laughs) that
2: sound coming from
0: (laughs) 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 i can't multiple multiple process here tldr tip i think because of your uh day job experience as a ux designer i think it'd be beneficial we had Clayton notestein in a previous segment of the show uh, and i would love to get more information for people we talked about laws of ux as a website that has some really good information there but is there anything else additionally around ux design and creating tabletop games either maybe either like web web design resources or physical layout stuff what are some i guess you talk a lot about processes in this episode Mm -hmm. so how what's like some criteria that you personally follow to make sure like a user experience is up to standard
2: that's a great and question. And let me
0: know if that's a too big of a question as well.
2: <laughs> you know, I could talk about this for another 10 hours, but that's a, <laughs> um, it's a whole other podcast.
0: Um, yeah, that's a whole other five podcasts.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I do want to, you know, if I boil it down to a nugget of, I think, what might be most useful for people listening, I think it's the... The beginner's mind always keeping in mind the beginner's mind. I think that is the secret of the the best UX designers I know, the best game designers, is that they are... they are always asking themselves the question, regardless of how I personally feel about this, how much I want to put into this, this book or this web experience or this card game or you know whatever it is the medium that you're designing in there's there's this 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 desire to put more in and the the skill and this 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 is hard you know this is painful because you know back to the I love the way that you put it much earlier in the the in our conversation of it's not just always about adding stuff, it's about removing as well mm-hmm. but always asking yourself the question. How is this coming across to someone who is experiencing it for the first time? What order are they experiencing it? Like, and I mean, starting from the very first experience, not because I think it, it can be easy to very quickly jump to. Well, like first they look at, you know, they go through the introduction, but then they're like in the rule section. It's like, no, no, no. Like, how do they come across the book? Mm -hmm. You know, what was like opening the box? What was the context they had coming into the experience? You know, had they played games before? Had they not played games before? And so on. And I think realizing that uh, there's these two mantras I say to myself that sound super negative, but are really helpful, which is basically the people experiencing thing you make don't give a shit about you. It's not about Mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. It's about them. It's about the experience that they're having. And assume that... 98% 98% of what you put on the page is literally going to be ignored. One thing that I always keep in mind is, for example, the way that your eyes work is that you've got the fovea, which is the area of focus that your eye is able to actually do things like read text, like see high-resolution stuff, pay attention to. It's, the size of it is if you hold your thumb out at arm's length, it's the size of your fingernail. Mm-hmm. And so your perception is you're seeing this wide field of view, but your brain is only seeing, like, this tiny, tiny thing. And it's constantly saccading around. It's jumping around to, like, fill in the picture. And your brain is actually really good at filling in things that aren't there if it hasn't looked at it for a while. Mm-hmm. It's, it's Your brain is telling a story of what even you can see. And remembering those things helps you when you're making stuff to just essentially I always ask the question, what can I cut? And it's always more than you'd like. And some of the techniques of, of UX, there's so much there, but the UX laws website, like that, that's such a nice articulation. I think there's lots of resources on just, just standard, like all, like all of graphic design typography, all of that, you know, that's really what it's getting at is how can I really clearly establish what's the most important thing on the page using like color and size and typography and shape. And like, that's really what it's all about It's like getting back to this idea of people are essentially throwing away 90% of what you're giving them cognitively. Mm-hmm. The the probably if I would leave you with like a couple of like really useful kind of tricks or tips and tricks here, mm-hmm. the single most useful technique uh here is going to someone who knows what you're trying to do, not some like it's important that people know what your intent is and asking them Okay, you have to cross out 50% of what I've written. Which 50% would you cross out? Mm, mm. And you can dial it up and down. Like I've gone to my friends and said, Hey, like here's the here's the zone manual. You can only keep like one page. You know, what do you keep? So that's one thing. That's one like huge thing is that exercise. And you can do that to yourself it can be helpful to have someone else just brutalize you with it (laughs) kindly. But it's really clarifying. The second thing is obviously like everyone playtests, but specifically playtesting in a making sure that when you're playtesting i think that whole adage of like re- listen to when people tell you how they you know how they feel and don't listen to their solutions i mean write them down be inspired by them but like create environments where people will go through the experience that's a really obvious one and then the third one the third like uh tip this was a huge part of the zone experience is a lot of the game design process focuses on how do you design the mechanics of the game and how do you design the you know the the loop the core loop of the game when i was making the zone and doing play tests i had my notes and i had the kind of prototype of the manual but what i would do is probably in the first quite a while actually instead of reading the manual it, it, when the manual got like baked enough that i could just follow the instructions i did that but what i would do is i would take a single sheet of paper And I write myself like a hit list of like, here are the things I want to hit in what order. And I would pay very careful attention to how I was introducing the concepts to players and how I was landing and trying to link how I introduced the concept to concept, to problems that happen later in the game. And you notice these huge shifts where, for example, if you put character creation before explaining certain rules, people felt more invested in the rules because they had just created their characters and they could kind of personalize it. Mm. But it also was a trade-off with pacing where people kind of like to know the rules before they create a character. Mm -hmm. So in the end, I put the character creation first, but I also put in like a very like a rules overview and then explain the rules. I'm kind of doing it twice at different levels. And the way that that came about was in this like repetitive process of writing down notes, not the full text, which would force me to verbally explain the game Mm -hmm. and then kind of like taking notes of myself explaining it And then writing that down, and then using that to come up with the next version. Mm -hmm. Like, I would say, like, designing the explanation, the onboarding of your game is at least 50% of the work. It's not 10%. It's not, like, just something you do at the beginning. It's not the, like, what is an RPG, like, chapter. I think it's actually 50% or more of the game design itself. And then you have to let the onboarding actually change the loop of the game itself. Mm. So one thing I did, and I would recommend people do this, is literally record yourself explaining the game, mm-hmm. and then listen to that recording and use that to like come up with the next iteration of doing that, and assume that you know you'll do that like a dozen times before you get to like where you want to get, and and really think of like the explanation of the game as not the explanation of the game, but as part of the game. That's actually where the experience begins when you open the box not when people start playing and they're done with the rules. Mhm. So that those would be like my my three recommendations, the exercise where aside from the obvious like layout and everything, do the exercise of asking people to like completely decimate your product and tell mm-hmm. you which parts they would keep, you know, Marie Kondo it brutally. Two is like play test but make sure that when you're play testing you play test in a way where people know what you're trying to do, so they can give you accurate feedback. So it's not just about how do they feel. They can say, "How well did this experience like hit your goals for the experience?" And then number three is to really think of the onboarding as part of the whole experience, not a separate thing, mm-hmm. and to, to literally like record yourself explaining it over and over again. And even better, record other people explaining it and be driven by that when you're writing the book or when you're writing the explanation instead of just presenting the rules. Like, ask yourself, like... And I think the wrapper concept around all of these is ask yourself how the whole experience is going from the perspective of a a new player from the moment they open the box or click the link to the end of the game, not just the part where they're playing. Like, Mm -hmm. design the whole thing, and the actual play will be much easier.
0: It's... I mean, that's awesome i i really think there's something i think one of the most valuable ones for me is the like give it to someone to to read and like take away the bits that they could live without sort of thing because what it's also doing is making sure that you're only key it's it's again like the concept you mentioned earlier of like taking into account what's not there right and what can be left up to interpretation right so like if yeah. someone takes out or crosses out something it's like what what that basically tells me, as you know, as I'm processing this, is like what that would tell me is like, oh, this is something that someone could make up. Like if if I gave it to eight people and all eight people say like, oh, I could live without this page, then it's probably something they're all like, this will all this will probably come naturally through gameplay, like from the other mechanics they kept. So
2: yeah, and 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 I I think also being aware that because and I I'll say this like because I personally feel it, I feel the pressure to have like more content. I think about, I think about this tweet. Someone posted a while back, which is, I I looked it up while we were talking. So I wanted to read it out, which is there's a special feeling when you step into the Louvre and you just know you're seeing some of mankind's greatest content produced by some of its top content creators. (laughs) Crushed me. (laughs) me. (laughs) So there's, there's this feeling of like, I need more content, I need more tables. I need more explanation. Mm-hmm. And and I, I like to think of it in terms of scaffolding and director's commentary. I think some of that content belongs in essentially like, you know, design your game. So you have all this like rich sidebar, like for the zone, I'm, I'm working on this right now is like a, a guide website where mm-hmm. I can, you can see all of, and this will be in the, the kind of printed version, but a guide where you can really see like, okay, here are all the tips. Like if you want to, the game will run itself, but if you want to level up as a facilitator, or you want to know what the design intent or the history, like this, which game was this move inspired by, like, you know, tell people at Archipelago, like I really want to credit all these remixes. Like, you know, I I think that's a place where a lot of that can go. So it could feel bad to delete your own stuff, but at least, you know, it doesn't mean it needs to, it it just needs to be like put in the right place. So make sure Mm -hmm. that people know what's essential and then let them dive deeper. And the other thing is scaffolding where create, what feels like too little content, and there's a rule at being in the zone, which is like, let uncomfortable silence, you know, happen mm-hmm. because people need time to just state like, just because there's a silence doesn't mean someone's stuck. It just means they're, they're creating. Mm. So you don't need to like have a rule for everything. You don't need to like always say like, oh, and now just roll from this table. But it can also be cool to give people the, the escape valve. So as a designer, you can say, oh, well, I cut this from the main flow. But I also have like 15 different ancillary tables or like my dream is to have a game where the core experience is really tight. But literally at any time you can say I'm stuck and it'll, Mm -hmm. you know, oh, I can't think of a mutation. Great. Here's a mutation. I don't know how to start this scene. Press a button. Here's some prompts. Like if Mm. every single game could have at every point, like here's a button and you'll get some help, then that's also where some of this extra content can go. So I think if you're if you're feeling, if you're listening and you're like, I don't want to cut 90% of my game, like people will then yell at me and say my PDF is just one page. It doesn't mean cut it, it just means like organize it in in the way where people will be able to get to know what's essential, what's like extra credit, and what can support them when they need to be
0: supported. Just juicing. It's fascinating because I think about from that circumstance. Like, okay. So the thing I wrote down that we talked about earlier is for that heed the call game, I was trying to basically take, fighting game archetypes the shoto the rushdown the zoner and put them into like use that as a class system because i think that's something that's not quite explored like there's there's the leader the striker the defender like tanks and damage dealers and support but those are all based on like party comps like party Mm -hmm. comp class design whereas i think fighting games are you're only playing with one character right so like that's solo how do you bring that solo class structure, then put it into a team composition? And part of that answer is assist games. But then you also think about how to get assist mechanics into a game. But I'm struggling with cool. trying to. Thank you. What I'm struggling with is trying to create those skill sets in a theater of the mind style. And what I wrote down was basically instead of like, instead of maybe writing player mechanics, I think one of the things I might focus on is only writing enemy mechanics. And then you build your own style based on the enemies you're encountering. And you have, like, a limited deck size for that. So like, okay, I'm facing a lot of, like, aerial opponents, so I need an anti-air ability. So I need to craft that and, like, get pieces or, like, have a tagging or a... Not a tagging system, but like a Mad Lib system of like, okay, this, if I put this in this card, it has to have this, like just sort of like parameter check things for like quote unquote the balance of the game, maybe. But it's fascinating to think about like instead of trying to, instead of trying to be the designer that builds the class, how about I just be the designer that designs the problem and let you come up with the solution, basically?
2: That's awesome. Yeah. Cause, cause then you're letting people. 'Cause then what's really cool about that is that people will be so much more invested in the in the solution in their character than if they were reading it off, you know, a character sheet, for example. Mm-hmm. Like,
0: and isn't that how martial arts are constructed anyways? Like you approach yeah. like a fighter problem and oh, then you yeah. adapt your style to that, right? So That's
2: awesome. Well, and actually like even there's like a bridging thing there too, where like even just mm-hmm. asking players what how would you approach this, you know, oh there's you know, this aerial character is like coming at you. It comes back to the thing we were talking about earlier of pointed questions, like the power mm-hmm. of questions in games mm-hmm. to help frame to, to kind of prime people to think in a certain way. That's mm-hmm. awesome, man.
0: Yeah. I think I think that's the that might be the answer here today. So thank you for those tips. They are they're powerful, <laughs> they're powerful things. And then you know thinking, I think what building your own fighter also helps with is minimizing the amount of cognitive load yeah. someone would have to take to learn the game. Because in its current iteration, you're basically playing a version of three card monty and war all at the same time. So <laughs> that can like those two things of like there's a. For anyone who's listening, there's a concept in fighting games called Yomi, which is basically reading your opponent, and it's how you kind of break their combo or get to start your combo in a fighting game or whatever have you. So in the game... I'm basically saying like, okay, you lay out three cards and then your opponent has to guess if one of those cards is even or odd or black and red or black or red. And then if you want to guess both, that's a perfect read and that yeah. gets you bonuses and stuff. Love that. So it's like, Oh, your center card is even. they and it creates like a 50-50 environment, which means that those are like your odds of the game, essentially. And what's also cool about like a fighting game concept is that in fighting games you have what's called conditioning where you start to like figure out your opponent's tells and then your opponent has to adapt to those things to build those the, and the beauty about playing cards is that there's card counting so like every time you use an attack cards go to the discard pile so then you start to figure out like oh this is what's left in your deck now I can make more accurate plays of like oh you've already played all your spades there's a pretty good chance that this is a red card here right and like that starts to grow and grow and grow so I think those are. That's basically how the game works, and that's why building your skill set, I think, might be more interesting than having a pre-written skill set.
2: I could see how those mechanics could create so much drama, it, it, like mm-hmm. replicating that feeling of I'm learning to read the opponent, mm-hmm. and then they're learning to read that I'm reading them, and then learning yeah. to read that they're reading that I'm reading them. <laughs> yeah. it's like this is what you know. It's like the the metagame around rock paper scissors. Right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's so deep.
0: <laughs> it's so good. Makes you think about Hunter Hunter, but. I think with all of that, that is going to bring us to the end of what might be the new longest episode of Draw Your Dice. It'll certainly probably be a two-parter. Raf, it has been an absolute pleasure having you here today. I've really gotten a uh, joy out of getting to know you here. Likewise.
2: Thank you for having me, man. I really appreciate yeah. it.
0: Aw. My heart's going to explode. <laughs> One final outplug of like who you are, where can people find you, where can they find your work so that, you know... If they made it all the way to the end here, they can still find you again.
2: Well, I'm Raftamico. You can find me uh, on Twitter at Raftamico. And yeah, I make the zone. Everything about it is at thezonerpg.com if you want weird annihilation style horror. And, you know, you play now for free. Stay tuned for a Kickstarter for the paper version later this year. And, yes. you know, thank you for listening.
0: Also, if do you have, like, UX work that people can look at as well? Like, do you have, like, a Behance or anything like that?
2: I don't. I don't. My, my, my like, all my, like, work portfolio is, is, is just not up to date.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll cut it out. I just, I was curious if, like, yeah. people could also reference your style as well. But they may also get that from The Zone, so...
2: Well, and here's what I'll tell you like it, it's it's like two different worlds, right? It's like the mm-hmm. UX design very is very much like that functional like, oh hey, I'm just trying to help someone accomplish a task within this company's mm-hmm. brand system and games are really where you can kind of just be yourself. so being it's this is the the being UX designer is you, 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 personal style is not as much of a thing there I would say
0: heard heard good to know. Well with that then. I have been Jeremy Gage. It has been a pleasure having you here. I hope you had a good time listening alongside me because I learned a lot and I hope you did too. And we will catch you next time. Say bye to the people, Raf.
2: Bye to all the people. Thank you for listening. You're all wonderful. Jeremy, thank you for hosting.
0: Wah, thank you. Wah. <laughs> God was wild. Alright, that's a wrap. Thank you for taking the time to sit down and hang out with Raf and I. We really appreciate it. You can find links and resources down below in the show notes, such as getting in touch with RAF or other episodes with similar topics. If you want to be a part of the conversation, please come and join the Community Discord server. Also, make sure to subscribe to the Draw Your Dice Patreon, where you can get access to early releases of episodes from as soon as we interview. Thanks again for stopping by, and as always, I will catch you next time.
1: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?